One of the most common questions I hear teachers ask is, what should I do first? Whether they've handed out a worksheet, projected a problem using a smart board or a document camera, or pointed students to a problem in their textbook, I'd venture to say that at least 50% of the time, the first question most math teachers ask is, what should I do first? So what's the problem with this? Why am I dedicating an entire episode to helping teachers move away from this go-to phrase? Keep listening to find out the answer to those two questions, plus hear 10 of my favorite alternatives to ask instead. No matter if you're teaching in person, remotely, or in some sort of hybrid fashion, today's episode applies to you. So let's get to it. former middle school teacher and math coach on a mission to help educators create a positive classroom community and reach every learner, all while finding balance in their own lives. Since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much about equity in education, building classroom community, math instructional practices that increase accessibility and learning, mindfulness and self-care, and ways to maximize time and impact through focused work and prioritization. Through conversations with experienced educators, you'll gain new knowledge, insights and inspiration, and practical ideas to try in your own classroom. I'll also share my many lessons learned over the years with the hope that it will accelerate your learning curve as a teacher. If you're an educator who's working hard to accelerate your students' confidence and understanding in math, you're in the right place. I want to be your mindful math coach, so let's go ahead and jump right in. talk about the question, what should I do first? I want to share a few high-level thoughts about the use of questions in math class more generally. When I go into a classroom for the first time, one of the things I'm most cued into is the questions that the teacher is asking students. Why? Because I believe that the questions teachers ask are an indication of the level of thinking students are being asked to do. And the level of thinking students do ties directly to the amount of learning they're doing. I doubt there's any disagreement about the importance of questions in math class. And in fact, NCTM's Principles to Actions names pose purposeful questions as one of the eight mathematics teaching practices that provide the foundation for effective mathematics teaching. That's a quote from page nine. In the chapter about posing purposeful questions, The authors talk about both the types of questions teachers ask and the patterns of questions, both of which are important to consider. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that today, but if you're interested, you can check out pages 35 to 41 for more detail. Instead, today we're going to ground ourselves in the goals teachers have when posing purposeful questions, and then I want to zero in on a key moment that we have in math class, that moment when we're tempted to ask, What should I do first? Okay, so according to Principles to Actions, the goal of posing purposeful questions is to, quote, 
assess and advance students' reasoning and sense-making about important mathematical ideas and relationships. And that phrase, reasoning and sense-making, indicates a focus on conceptual understanding. So our goal with this practice should mainly be around asking questions during instruction that target the deeper meaning behind the problem, the situation, and the strategies. Questions that get at the why and help students strengthen their conceptual understanding. Now, I will state up front that I believe a balance between all of the aspects of mathematical learning, the three aspects of rigor as they're frequently called, conceptual understanding, procedural skill and fluency, and application, are important. However, as I just mentioned, I believe this particular practice calls for a focus on questions that get at conceptual understanding. And frankly, in my experience, this is the aspect of rigor that is most frequently underrepresented in math classes. Far too often, we lean towards procedural teaching methods when the standard or the problem tasks are really meant to build conceptual understanding. And this brings me to the bone I have to pick with that very common question math teachers ask, what should I do first? There are three main reasons I want to caution you against the overuse of this question in math class. Yes, I said overuse, which means that I'm not suggesting that it's never appropriate to ask this question, just that it should be used strategically. And I'll share more about that later when I get off my soapbox about its overuse. So here are the three reasons. First, I think the use of the word I, as in what should I do first, positions the teacher as the owner of the problem and the students as helpers. In other words, it makes it sound like the students are doing the teacher a favor by helping him or her solve the problem, as if they have no ownership or investment in the problem themselves. Which, let's be honest, if you're asking that question, then there's probably a good chance your students aren't highly invested in finding a solution. Instead, I want you to think about what language you could use to invite your students into the problem-solving process with you or even better, to make them the true problem solvers. Even making the subtle shift of replacing I with you is a good first step. What should you do first? Second, let's talk about the word should. The word should is triggering to me in any area of my life. Perhaps it's triggering to you as well. I always want to be in charge of my decisions and my choices. I never want to be told what someone thinks I should do. I should have a salad for lunch. I should send someone a card. I should go to bed earlier. By the way, most of those are the shoulds that are happening in my own head, not someone else telling me that, but even still, it's triggering. Should is a word that people use as a way to control. And if that word goes through your mind as often as it goes through mine, it can be helpful to try and catch it and then replace it with something more empowering. For example, I want to have a salad for lunch because eating healthy makes me feel good. Or, I'm planning to wake up early to meditate, so I'm going to choose to go to bed by 10 p.m. See the difference it makes when we take the word should out? Okay, please forgive the digression. Let me bring it back to math class now. By using the word should, it can send a message to students that there is one right answer to the teacher's question. And in an age where we all know how important it is to value students' ideas, to highlight multiple solution strategies, and to help students think flexibly about problems, 
we definitely do not want to send the message that there is one way to do something. So what's the fix here? What can we say to send the message that we're open to hearing students thinking? Well, first off, you can replace should with could or did, depending on the timing of your question. If it's before students have had a chance to engage with the problem, try could. What could you do first? And if it's after students have worked on the problem for a short period of time, you could use did. What did you do first? And then add and why. I like it. Now we're getting somewhere. So let's move on to the third and final reason to rethink the question, what should I do first? The final reason is that by focusing your questions on the steps a person should or would take to solve the problem, the problem-solving process quickly becomes more about answer-getting than sense-making. And if you remember, the effective mathematics practice about posing purposeful questions is all about asking questions to advance students' reasoning and sense-making, not to help them get to the answer as quickly as is humanly possible. Questions like, what should I do first? Or even, what did you do first? are usually the beginning of a series of questions that walk students down a specific problem-solving path that is typically chosen by the teacher. And as a result, instead of having a discussion about reasoning and mathematical ideas, the dialogue turns into a back-and-forth between teacher and students where the teacher asks what the next step would be and students answer, or guess, until all of the dots have been connected from point A to Z, whether students truly understand what's going on or not. Now, before you get defensive, I want to say that this is completely natural and very common. And yes, even when I teach, there are times I use this approach. However, what I want you to recognize is that this is procedural teaching. And there is a place for that. But I want you to be strategic about when you pull the strategy out. I want you to bring it to your awareness so that you're conscious of it. And you can use it intentionally when you're supporting students to gain procedural skill and fluency when the standards call for it. But what I don't want is for it to become your default and become your go-to approach when you are going over problems with students. Let's call a spade a spade. This is procedural teaching, and it's only meant to be the focus of our instruction about one-third of the time. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this type of instruction is what we find in typical U.S. classrooms way more than one-third of the time. All right, so hopefully I've convinced you to try to expand your repertoire of questions to ask students in order to assess and advance students' reasoning and sense-making about important mathematical ideas and relationships. Or maybe you didn't need any convincing, but rather a gentle reminder about how important our questions are as teachers. And this episode just brought it back to the forefront of your mind. Either way, I'm excited for you because by asking more open questions that elicit students' ideas, you're going to have richer conversations in your math class that lead to deeper learning. Now, to help you put this into practice, I've generated a list of 10 questions you can ask at the front end of a math problem or task to get your students thinking instead of asking them what you should do first. Are you ready? I will link these in the show notes for this episode, so no need to take notes as I rattle them off. Here they are. Number one, what do you notice? What do you wonder? 
These are already well-known, but I felt like I couldn't leave them off. Number two, how is this problem similar to the last problem we solved? How is it different? Number three, what is one piece of information that seems vitally important for solving the problem? Number four, what could be confusing about this problem to someone? Number five, if you were to draw a picture of what's happening in this problem, what would it look like? Number six, what is a reasonable answer to this problem? What is an example of an unreasonable answer? Number seven, do you think we have enough information to solve this problem? Why or why not? Number eight, in your own words, what are we trying to find or solve in this problem? Number nine, what thoughts do you have about how we could approach this problem? Number 10, when we arrive at an answer, how can we check to see if it's correct? Now, I like to call these before questions because they're questions that you can ask before you get into the nuts and bolts about what students did when they solved the problem or what you could do and sort of the steps that led from the, the question in the problem to the answer. And all of these questions will get students thinking, build investment and ownership of the problem-solving process, and help students build reasoning and sense-making skills. Not only that, but they will lead to much deeper discussions that will allow students to clarify their thinking, learn from one another, and allow you to gain insight into what they understand at a conceptual level and where they might have some misconceptions. It's likely that in a future episode, I'll share more about how we can build from this initial question in order to facilitate a stronger math discussion and encourage student-to-student conversation. That's when we'll get into the patterns of questions a bit more. For now, I want you to pay attention to that very first question you ask students when they first see a problem or in that moment when you've called the class back together after they had a few minutes to try the problem on their own and you're about to discuss it or go over it or talk through it. If it's helpful, you can even print off this list of questions and keep it nearby so when you're tempted to say, what should I do first, and you catch yourself, you'll have some go-to alternatives handy. And of course, this list is just meant to support you in increasing the number of questions that will lead to deeper thinking in your math class, whether you're just starting out, or if you're working towards more consistency, or if you're already a master but might have heard one or two new ideas today that you want to add to your already robust list. Okay, friends, that's all I've got for you today. As a reminder, you can access the list of 10 alternative questions to ask in place of what should I do first on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at www.mindfulmathcoach.com forward slash episode 22. In closing, I want to extend an invitation to you to join me on the journey to providing equitable math learning experiences and outcomes for students of color. If you enjoyed this episode and want to make sure you don't miss the next one, head over to mindfulmathcoach.com and sign up to receive weekly reminders for new episodes. You know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, and oftentimes the math improvement journey and the journey towards a more equitable and just society can feel a thousand miles long. 
That's why I'm so glad that we're on this mindful math journey together, and in particular, why I'm glad you've chosen to take a single step forward with me today by listening into this episode. Thanks for tuning in.